Hey there and welcome back. I'm Lucy Barkas and this is the Leader X podcast, the future of work. In my book, Leader X, a call for X-generation leaders to step up, take control and lead with impact, I share the five mys of leading organizations and teams. My legacy is all about getting clear about what you want to create, the impact you want to have on your people, customers, and the world around you. Ultimately, your purpose. It's the opportunity to dream a little bigger, craft a clear vision, and to strategize. But how do you do this when the world is so unpredictable and fast-changing? In this series, I welcome futurists, people who hang out in the possibilities of the future of work, and I ask them about what's coming up, from branding to AI, automation and culture, products to talent development, nothing is off limits. The goal is to inspire you, challenge you, and help you think bigger about your impact, your legacy. Head to the website to sign up to the 3WH newsletter, where those who are serious about leadership now and in the future will get all the tools, tips, and methods to be the leader they wish they'd had. Now, this next episode is a great one. We recorded it a few weeks ago, and since then, Jonathan Hemus and his book, Crisis Proof, has won the Business Book Awards. Huge congratulations to Jonathan. He really is an engaging guest, um, and I apologize right now for sounding a bit bummed up After a year of wearing masks, I finally caught a cold. But enough about me. Sometimes it feels like we're hearing about another crisis after another crisis. And if I think back to just recently, I can recall a boat stuck in the Suez Canal creating whole supply chain crises to the BAFTA suspending an award winning actor on the back of legal claims. And then there was the whole football super league debacle which showed different leaders approaching in very very different ways and even more recently google had to do a u-turn after it announced its back to work policy and the internet exploded so in a volatile uncertain and complex world that we live in it feels like everyone should be expecting a crisis at some point Now, there can be a number of positives from a crisis. It can shake up an organization and and force you to reinvent or at least focus on issues that perhaps have been disregarded. But in my experience, although you can see the gifts after the event, whilst you're in it, it doesn't feel like much joy or much fulfillment. In fact, it just creates nothing but stress. So today's guest is the perfect person to speak to that. Now, Jonathan Hemus is founder and managing director of crisis management consultancy called Insignia and was previous uh, global head of crisis and issues management at international consultancy Porta Novelli. He works with leaders of businesses around the world to ensure that they have the capability and confidence to do and say the right things under intense pressure. Now, during his 25-year career, he's advised clients, including Anglo-American, Cathay Pacific, Disney, which I love, uh, the Financial Times, and so many more. And his driving passion is to prevent the needless harm caused by mishandled crisis. So it sounds like he is the man that we all need in our lives right now. So I'm going to just say, hello, Jonathan. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for the fabulous introduction. 
Yeah, and I bet as I was reading some of just the more recent um, crises that we've seen in the news, um, yeah, you're probably looking at it in a different lens. I look at it from a leadership lens and you're probably looking at it from a whole other perspective that I want you to share with the, the leaders who are listening in today. So why don't you tell me a little bit more about yourself and how on earth did you get into crisis management? Well, it's true that when I left university at 21, I didn't have an ambition to become a crisis management consultant. I've yet to meet anyone who did have an ambition to become a crisis management consultant. But what I always did have was an interest in business, in people, and in communication. And those three things kind of come together in crisis management. And I think my earliest memory of a a leader in a crisis and one of the people that inspired me, certainly interested me in this topic was Michael Bishop, then chief executive of British Midland. And I remember being in the sitting room in my parents' home in 1989 and the evening's programs being interrupted by news of a plane crash. A British Midland jet had come down near East Midlands airport in Kegworth. I remember it well. And and the thing that was really uh, unusual, in fact, it was the first time I'd ever seen it, was the newsreader be- began doing an interview with Michael Bishop directly from his car as he was travelling to the scene of that accident. And it was the first time that I'd ever heard a mobile phone being used. But from a leadership point of view, right from that moment when he began communicating within minutes of the aeroplane crashing to the fact that he was taking personal responsibility by going to the incident and the way that he showed care and empathy for all those affected by visiting relatives at the hospital and speaking with anyone who needed to be spoken with, it struck me, even at that early stage, as a really powerful uh, example of leadership. I then saw over the coming 12 months, literally within the coming 12 months, examples of leaders that didn't do that. So the Exxon Valdez, the awful uh, environmental catastrophe that came as a result of that, the Pan Am crash. And in both of those incidents, the leaders of those organisations were invisible. That gave me an interest in this area. I progressed through a corporate communication consultancy, but eventually weaseled my way into a role which was crisis specific, which I always wanted to do. That was the role at Porta Novelli. And as you also mentioned in the introduction, I just hate seeing good organisations do harm to both themselves in terms of their reputation and the value of the organisation, but also to all of those people affected by a mishandled crisis. So that's what really gives me the passion and the drive to do what I do. And that's why I set up uh, Insignia 12 years ago to help reduce the mistakes to give leaders the confidence and capability to perform well under pressure in a crisis protect their organization but also protect their stakeholders now that's really interesting because you you already started to pick up on some of the the key characteristics that a leader must employ when you know in crisis and you you talked about being present being seen being visible um being human as yeah. opposed to being invisible and silent mm-hmm. um and again you know the ones that really stand out to me are the ones where they've come out and they've just connected and they've said mm-hmm. look this is the issue i don't know all the answers yet um but i'm right here with you 
And you talk about that in your book, Crisis Proof. Um, So can you expand on some of those, I I guess, key characteristics a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe if I start off my answer by kind of looking at why all leaders don't do that, because, you know, my book, Crisis Proof, is, is the latest book on crisis management. But We've seen over the last decades what works and what doesn't work in a crisis. So why is it that leaders don't follow the golden rules, which are pretty well established now? And it, I think it simply comes down to the fact that it is an extraordinary situation carrying huge pressure, lack of information, lack of time, a big spotlight. Um, and that puts even experienced leaders under pressure and causes them to make irrational decisions. It's also because they recognise both the fate of their organisation and their own personal reputation and fate um, is on the line. And we've seen many chief executives lose their jobs after a crisis. It's also because organisations and leaders fail to invest enough time in planning, training and rehearsing for a crisis. So those are the reasons why On occasions, we see very successful businesses and business leaders doing irrational things. What makes for a good crisis leader? Well, there are loads of characteristics, but I will start with a cliche term, but one which actually is so important. Oh, don't worry, I love a good cliche. (laughs) (laughs) Authenticity. Mm. So what people are looking for is a leader who is prepared to stand forward and is prepared to say the right things, not because my book tells them they are the right things to say, but because from within them, they know and they feel that they are the right things to say. And more importantly, they do the right things as well as say the right things. So being an authentic, empathetic, human caring leader is the start of all of this um you can't role play that you have to actually be it um although i do think sometimes and i think this is changing uh, over the last few years but i do think sometimes when chief executives in particular their main form of communication traditionally might be to investors for example suddenly the style of communication required in a crisis is very different to what they're used to. So I think sometimes genuinely very good, very caring people find it difficult to make that switch from one role as a business leader into another. Second quality, and stop me because I can give you loads of qualities, but it is courage. And it's courage in the sense of the courage to make really tough decisions in a timely manner. If we look at the um, biggest corporate crisis before the pandemic, I would suggest that was the Boeing 737 MAX. What happened there? Well, we know that over 300 people lost their lives in two air crashes. But what didn't happen, what didn't happen was that Boeing and its leadership team did not make the decision to ground its aircraft the authorities, the aviation authorities made that decision for them. Now, Mm -hmm. that's a tough decision for a leadership team to to make. You know, our business is about aeroplanes being in the air. Two have crashed. It's going to cost us a lot of money to ground those aircraft. But you have to have the courage 
to make those decisions. And the third quality is you need to make decisions based on your values. Your approach to leadership needs to be values led. And one of Boeing's values is enduring safety. Well, if enduring safety is one of your values, I would suggest your decision should be to ground your aircraft. So th there's three areas that I think are critical. Um, courage, uh, humanity, and the willingness to make difficult decisions, but based on your values. Well, do you know what? All I think is that um, the, the leaders need to buy your book and then they need to buy my book <laughs> and actually will solve the world's problems because Perfect. they're a lot of the qualities that I speak to as yeah. well. And obviously you said pre-pandemic, um, there's just been a whole host of different crises that, um, that from small business owners, self-employed, right mm. up to governments, royal families, um, you know, huge organisations worldwide they've had to, you know, really go into crisis management. And, uh, and just really interestingly, you know, some have really, in, you know, found great love and admiration from, you know, just the general public as a result of the way in which they've led through a crisis. Yes. Um, so which are some of the, the leaders that have really stood out for you, not to do with their politics or their, their status, or just yeah. in terms of how they've shown up? No, you're right. And a crisis is an opportunity. I mean, I think what I would say is that um, no organisation ever ends up at the end of a crisis where they were at the start of the mm. crisis. You will either end up enhanced by what you've learned and what you've achieved and what you've created, or you will end up severely damaged. So it's a, it's a pivotal moment and it's the leaders that step forward and, yeah, grab I'm going to call it an opportunity, grab that opportunity, grab that responsibility, but we'll come out of that organisation with enhanced trust, because I think trust is one of the critical things that you are trying to protect in a crisis. In fact, probably the most critical thing that you are seeking to protect. Um, politicians take a real hammering. So I am going to give an example of a political leader, which who I think is an utterly brilliant leader in a crisis, and that is uh, Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister uh, of New Zealand. Well, do you know what? I think uh, a lot of people are going to agree with you there because the amount of people I've seen on social media saying, can I move to New Zealand, please? I mean, I know nothing about her politics. What I do know is, you know, when they have a natural disaster, when they have a pandemic, when they have a terrorist incident, there is no one that I would want to be led by more than Jacinda Ardern. Why? Because again, she steps forward. She leads in a very human, personal and personable manner. It's not just what she says and what she does, but it's the way she does it. Her body language, her tone of voice, her actions, they all communicate that this is someone who really cares. Yeah. But equally, not only do they care, but they have the wherewithal to address the situation. That's what people need to hear in a crisis. One, that our leaders care, but also that they have the capability to address this situation. And she has both of those qualities and I think is a um, superb crisis leader. Um, from the corporate sphere going back about three or four years now, the... Um, accident at Alton Towers in the Midlands of the UK, the Smiler accident, 
Uh, Merlin's CEO uh, is a guy called Nick Varney. Um, again, a bit like Michael Bishop all those years ago, rather than, you know, hide in his ivory tower, he went straight to the scene of that uh, accident. And again, rather than hide behind the legalese of no comment or, you know, an unwillingness to apologise, he began communicating immediately and he communicated all of the right things. He assumed responsibility straight away, both for what had happened and for putting it right. He expressed what was clearly heartfelt uh, empathy and sympathy for those uh, affected to the extent that the lawyers for the victims, you know, thanked him and said that the organization could not have done more. What was also clear though, was that it was also a very well planned and very well rehearsed response. For example, Alton Towers use of social media immediately after the event, where again, they engaged with people asking questions. They didn't just pump out information. The fact the normal, you know, jazzy website was taken down and there was a more sober message um, put there, told me, here's an organization that really cares about what happens if we have a crisis. And here's a leader who can exemplify that in the way that they respond to it. Now, that's really interesting because, you know, hopefully most organisations will not have those major catastrophes that make headlines. But crisis happens all the time, you know, whether it's a death in service or there's a product failure, supply chain, you're not able to honour your customers' requirements. All of these kind of things, maybe key personnel leave for whatever reason so you can very quickly go into mini crises yes so how do you create a culture that is almost crisis resistant if that's even a thing yeah absolutely and that really is the first and really the most important thing that a leader can do because the best crisis of all is the crisis prevented and the second best crisis is the one that is well managed because you become aware of it quickly and take action quickly. How do you achieve that? You achieve that by creating a crisis resistant culture. And let me give you some of the characteristics or requirements of that. It requires a leader to genuinely welcome challenging or dissenting voices and the communication of bad news. So if there is something going wrong within your organization, whether it's at a, you know, a practical technical level or at a cultural level, the enlightened leader will want to know because it's only by knowing about it that you can address it. And- oh, I'm glad you said that because on a number of uh, my leadership development courses, we've talked about you know how you lead and how you create the cultures where people can speak up. Mm-hmm. And one of the topics that came up very you know more recently was the Grenfell uh, Tower fires. Yes. And somebody was saying somebody must have said something, and I said they probably did, but it's yeah. whether they were willing to listen. Correct. But that was critical. You can catch up on past episodes like Rob Brady, who talks about mental health, and Mary Williams, who talks about leadership well-being. Coming up next, we have Michael Anderson, who talks about leading high-performance remote teams after years in software, startups, and scaling. And now his journey into spiritual leadership. So keep listening for more great leadership insights and hit that subscribe button.
So absolutely, that um, encouragement, as I say, of bad news or dissenting voices or challenges where actually people are thanked for bringing that to the leaders rather than uh, disciplined or, or pushed away. So, yes, you know, encouragement for people to bring bad news and a willingness to listen and act on it. Another one is getting simply the incentives and the rewards within the organisation correct. So, um, for example, unless you incentivize quality or health and safety and recognise and reward that, why would people make that a top priority? If instead you only incentivise, for example, productivity or sales, might you not get people on the production line pushing stuff through quicker than the safety regime should really allow? If you encourage people to simply maximise sales to get the biggest pay packet, might you not get some people cutting corners, fiddling the numbers a bit? So making sure that the incentives, the rewards and targets that you put in place are also part of creating a crisis resistant culture. Um, open lines of communication, it's similar to the first one, but the other thing about open lines of communication, it's about how quickly can you be made aware of an emerging problem? If you have a culture or even a structure which is very hierarchical or very bureaucratic or very complex, when, you know, person A spots a problem in the front line, how quickly does the person that's supposed to be addressing that find out? And it may not be that that person doesn't want to find out, but the complex or labyrinthine nature of the structure that's been put in place prevents word getting from A to B in a quick enough period of time. Oh, and I see that all the time, you know, unless you've got a personal dial um, or WhatsApp group to the, the CEO or the key decision maker, um, there's these gatekeepers Yes. Uh, and who have often got their own priorities and their own agendas um, and they just don't see the importance of it um, or they don't want to deliver the bad news because they're in ego state. Yeah, but it's really complex. So that is really critical, I think. It is. And I mean, I think the other thing and of course, this is true for all uh, leadership traits that uh, that leaders want to encourage with regards to crisis management, it's about championing it yourself. It is about, again, another cliche, walking walking the talk. You know, if you are running a crisis management workshop, make sure that the chief executive and managing director is the first one through the door. And that conversely, are not the ones saying that they are too busy to attend. If they're, if they're too busy to attend, then other people will make themselves too busy to attend. So... Again, visible and active leadership ahead of the event sets the tone and sets the culture for the rest of the organisation. So it's, it's really interesting because um, I, in a lot of the work that I, I do with clients, I'm trying to get them to stop managing and start leading. So mm -hmm. being more proactive rather than reactive. And a lot of the challenges I have um, is, yeah, but we're so busy right now. We don't have time to do X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only later when they realise, damn, I wish I'd have listened to Lucy. And <laughs> you're absolutely alluding to the same thing. You don't know you need crisis 
um, culture or crisis management until you really need it. So what tips can you give to current leaders now to start either thinking, challenging the way that they're thinking or embedding that kind of culture so it doesn't feel like a huge piece of work that they have to do, that they can just start evolving into that way? So I think one of the, there are a number of ways in, into this. I mean, I would encourage every organisation, whatever size it is, and obviously the scope of the programme will scale according to the size of the organisation, but I would encourage every organisation to have a crisis management plan and a good crisis management plan is a way of working in a crisis. So it sets out a structure for acting purposefully, swiftly, and in a targeted manner when you are under that pressure. It is not an IKEA guide, you know, step by step to manage every single possible situation. But what it is, is it is a very different way of leading and managing to make progress and to exert influence over the situation that you're, you're facing, down to, you know, simply having a very clear agenda that you use in a crisis, which is different from an agenda for a normal meeting. So the first thing is to get yourself a plan. I'd also encourage people to think about and think about in a structured way, some of your more likely crisis scenarios. So if you're involved in financial services or indeed any uh, business these days, what would you do if you became the victim of a cyber attack? sit down if you've got you know colleagues within the business sit down with your colleagues and just walk through what would we do and why if this morning we were to find out that we'd been uh, hacked all our computers are locked and we've got a ransomware demand what would we do walking through that process has two massive benefits one it rehearses your thinking and decision making ahead of the event so you are starting to make in principle decisions without the pressure really being on rather than when it's happened. And secondly, as you go through that process, you will identify that some of the things you would want to do at the moment you are unable to do because you don't have the resources. At a very simple level, taking my cyber example, you might say to some point, oh, well, at this point, we'd need to bring in some cyber experts. Do you know any? No. Right, let's find a couple of cyber experts so that if this happens, we've met them, we've spoken to them, we know their capabilities, we can call them up. So and yeah, you've got them on speed dial if you need them in a crisis. Exactly. So a bit of scenario planning. And then the final things, I think, in terms of preparation and say there are millions of things you could do, but these would be a good three things to start with. A rehearsal, run and exercise so building on that discussion in the scenario planning actually run through a scenario with role players um, to get you to practice responding to a crisis because now I've got to say we um, my background is the energy industry and we did this all the time um, and it was whether you're in the offices and there was a bomb threat because yeah. people were annoyed about stuff or yeah, the, the, there might be an explosion at one of the, the um, energy stations. And so yeah. we, we had to rehearse this a lot. And actually, I don't think we were really aware what we were doing, why we were rehearsing it, but it makes total sense. 
it's only by building that mental muscle memory that you can be really confident in the plan that I was talking about, uh, you know, earlier. And again, whatever the size of the organization, it doesn't have to be all singing or dancing. You know, we are a specialist niche consultancy. We exercise ourselves because we could be the victim of the cyber attack or another type of crisis. So we run our own rehearsals because a plan without a rehearsal is very flimsy. It requires people to have literally walked it through to give them confidence and capability. Oh, that's great. Now you've really given me some insight. Um, and we're getting to the end of the, the podcast. But before we uh, we start wrapping up, um, I'm really curious over some of the more fun kind of crises. And one that springs to mind is um, Colin the Caterpillar. Yeah. Now, I loved how um, Aldi and all of the other uh, supermarkets almost joined forces and, and made it quite quite playful, quite fun. Mm-hmm but with the very silent partner of M&S, who's yeah. clearly got somebody saying, do not say a word, mm-hmm. be absolutely silent on this. Can you speak to um, them in terms of if you were advising M&S during that social media poking fun, um, how you would advise them to have dealt with that? Well, I think one of the really interesting things about that situation, and this definitely applies to all crises, kind of serious or not, or or more more lighthearted, it's really important that the organisation speaks with its natural tone of voice. It might need to be nuanced a little bit, but, um, you know, I think it's absolutely natural for Aldi to have spoken with a jocular, cheap, yeah. down-to-earth tone of voice, maybe it's not quite so appropriate for Marks and Spencer to do that. So I think it's partly about understanding, you know, your own organisation, its its reputation, its brand values, its tone of voice, and in your response to the crisis, um, as far as possible, sticking to that. And I say as far as possible because obviously, in a very serious crisis even if you are a light-hearted brand, if there are fatalities or injuries, clearly light-hearted doesn't work. My favourite example of a light-hearted response to a crisis, which was brilliant, um, was KFC. So KFC, I don't know if you remember, two or three years ago, ran out of chicken. They switched (laughs) and they couldn't get chicken into their their restaurants. That's a bit of a problem if you're a chicken restaurant <laughs> and if you recall it there was about five or six days until they actually got chicken back into the restaurants one of the things that people remember that kfc did was they took out full page advertisements in the national media and they changed their logo from kfc to fck on these full page advertisements and underneath was a copy that said we're sorry we screwed up we, we let you down two at least two brilliant things about that one they said sorry which always takes the heat out of the situation and two by taking that light-hearted creative very clever approach they kind of showed humility but not only that the story became how brilliantly kfc had responded to this not the crisis which had preceded it so yeah, if we're looking for a really effective, light-hearted response, then I take my hat off to KFC. And, and that just goes to um, show that um, there is no um, script 
for this it and like you say it's going back right you know at the start you said it's going back to your values and your culture and your behaviors and that authenticity yeah um and the the final example that i um absolutely loved the um in the last 12 months was the ceo of airbnb you know, the most horrific news saying that they were going to obviously have to lose all of these jobs, shut down, you know, all these independent um, suppliers of beds were suddenly having no revenue. And the way in which he wrote the letter was one of the most heartwarming. And I felt like he was talking to me as a, a real human person sat in front of him. And so I just wanted to just highlight that one as something that's is devastating but can you know for me he will always go down in history as being a true leader i absolutely concur i tweeted and posted on linkedin about that letter myself and you can't fake that authenticity that was the true leader but more than the true leader it was the true person coming through in that letter and i completely concur you know sometimes you have to communicate bad news um, but it's how you do it that counts. Yeah, brilliant. Well, um, I'm definitely going to go over and uh, and follow you on Twitter now so I can get some of your more insights. Um, so just tell me a little bit about, well, tell the, the listeners, where can they find you? Where do you hang out? What's your, your um, hashtag or your name? So I... I use LinkedIn a lot for um, posting fresh insights, news and thoughts about crisis management matters. I'm fortunate, I think, that I have a pretty unique name. So if you look for Jonathan Hemus on LinkedIn, you won't find another one unless another one sprung up today. So there's a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. Uh, On Twitter, I'm at Insignia. You can uh, read about the work we do on insigniacrisis.com. And you can find out a little bit more about me, my book and other activities I'm involved in again, simply at jonathanhemus.com. Oh, it's been wonderful talking to you and um, and you've just made so much sense. And you've also made me feel quite safe that actually if something did happen, that there is a route through. So um, congratulations on the book. We just need to get it out there to more people. And like I say, then follow up with my book, Leader X, and you've got the full package. So thank you very much, Jonathan. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lucy. So that's another episode done. Don't forget to buy the book, Leader X, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to the newsletter at www.3wh.uk.com. That's the number three in the letters W and H. And now I call on you to step up, take control and lead with impact. Follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on another great guest. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Leader X podcast. The Leader X podcast is a gifted gab production for 3 